Brethren are dismissed back to Praise Factory, and uh, if you'd open your Bible to Luke chapter 15, we're going to be spending our time in the Word in, in Luke 15 this morning, and we will be focusing on hope as we have uh, for the past two weeks or, or three weeks. Uh, hope, but this morning we're going to talk about hope for the miserable, and uh, that's a, an interesting concept or, or thought. Hope, uh, as described by uh, the Puritan theologians, is the solemn assurance that things will turn out as we have been promised. Uh, the assurance that things will turn out as we have been promised. And so uh, hope doesn't necessarily change our circumstances. Hope doesn't necessarily uh, shift what is and what we see in front of us. It doesn't necessarily change what it is around us. It changes our perspective on it. And so that is one of the most powerful and important things that, that we need is to have hope in the midst of, of difficult circumstances. In Luke chapter 15, Luke records uh, quite possibly, I think, one of Jesus' most famous parables. Uh, there's three parables in there. If I were a parable, I'd want to be the third parable, uh, not the first two, because they seem to get forgotten. But we're going to read all three, uh, because the, the, the whole chapter is important here. So Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1, says this, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. No one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. 
I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these Many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come to your word. We thank you that we've had an opportunity to praise you in song and to open our hearts to receive the word. And we thank you that you have spoken to us in your word and your spirit ministers to us. He speaks to us when we read the word aloud. And so we thank you for the opportunity to do that. And we pray as we turn to the explanation of the word that that we would be careful and faithful to take what we hear and to apply it to ourselves. To take the word and to say, how does this apply to me? Not to, not to say, uh, did the, 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 the preacher say something specifically that applied to me? But instead to say, Lord, Spirit, I hear you. I hear how this affects my life and affects my attitude and affects my heart and my view of the world. And so, Lord, I pray this morning as we gather here, whether we're going through a difficult time, or whether we're in the midst of a a great time, or whether we have been in a bad place for a long time, I pray that you would speak to our hearts and our minds, and that we would say, yes, Lord, to you, and that we would make changes in the way that we look at you, in the way that we look at ourselves and in the way that we look at others. And Lord, we pray that we would do this knowing that you are good and kind and gracious and that the relationship 
and the love that we receive from you is unlike any other. And so it will be mysterious and different. But it ought to change the way that we think and the way that we live and the way that we love. And so we ask that you would challenge us now, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I thought about uh, Christmas and uh, Christmas sermons, um, I often have, have found myself prepping a message uh, right for uh, around like Christmas Day and, and thinking about uh, the, the difficulty that some have going into these seasons, difficult things that happen, bad memories associated with them. And I've, I've often kind of brushed this message or this draft or this intro aside because it's Christmas, right? You know, and who wants to be depressed on Christmas or think about sadness. Um, But I think that when we look at the gospel accounts and we look at the the way that, that God introduces his son when he appears, there are these themes of of transformation. There are these moments of of change that come when Jesus arrives. Uh, The prophecies that predict him coming say that the people who lived in darkness have seen a great light. There is something about the coming of Jesus that changes and challenges the way that we think and the way that we love and the way that we hope. And so we need to to take a look at, at the dark side occasionally. Right? And, and say, what, what, is, what is really going on in our minds and hearts at times? Or what's going on in the, the mind and heart of that person that you, are, that you work with or that is in your family that you care for? And they just are, they are not full of joy. They are not full of, of happiness. How do we bring hope to them? How do we encourage them? Uh, Webster's Dictionary or... Uh, I don't look at Webster's Dictionary. Wikipedia defines, I mean, they've already typed the definition out for you. You just copy it, right? Uh, Wikipedia defines miserable as wretchedly unhappy or uncomfortable. Miserable, to be in misery, to be unhappy, sad, dejected, depressed. I love that, that they have a little section that says more informal, more informal, right? to be blue or down in the mouth. I don't think anybody talks like that anymore, do they? But maybe if you're reading an older book, uh, you'll, you'll find something. Like, to, be, to be down in the dumps. Uh, I like that. Miserable. I don't like to feel that way. But it's just kind of neat that, that Wikipedia is preserving these things. Uh, some people are miserable because they're saddened by their circumstances. Something changed. Something difficult happened, and, and they uh, find themselves in a place where they are surrounded by misery and they are unhappy. Uh, someone may look back at choices they've made, and, and they say, oh, this is how I got here. This is, this is how my, my life and my choices and my decisions led me to this place where I am now Miserable. Whether that is I made choices that, that led to me uh, living with, with difficult health. Or here is how I got into tremendous debt. Or here's when the accident occurred and all the things that, that came from it. Bad habits, bad decisions, bad relationships can lead to us being miserable. When we look at 
Luke, we see the making of a crisis in this first section of the parable, as Luke describes it. Uh, we begin in, in verse 11, where Jesus says there was a man who had two sons. The younger one has a scheme for changing his circumstances and being happy. The reason I'm not happy, he figured, is because I don't have what is eventually going to come to me. And so if I get what's coming to me and I take it right, and I go use it, man, that's going to be great. And so he got everything he was asking for and he started to spend it. Right? It says that he took the inheritance from his father and he moved to another place. He took a journey into a far country. He moved away from his father and from that relationship. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Look at you. Thank you. I won't tell anybody. Thank you. He, ooh, that feels better. Thank you. He squandered what he was given in reckless living. He gave himself to all the things that he had wanted to do, which he could not enjoy in the shadow of his father or the shadow of the relationship that he had with his father, right? He was confined and restrained by circumstances which made him miserable, right? And so he ran off to this far country. And then the money ran out. His circumstances changed. He found himself in need. And perhaps the the friends and the people who he had met, all the things that he was enjoying were suddenly unavailable to him. His friends vanished on him. And it says that a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. He had... When he got to the country, probably what he would have needed to survive the famine, right? To make it through that difficult time. But his intent was not, I'm going to save and I'm going to be ready in case circumstances take a downturn. No, his attitude was, I am going to live it up because I don't care about tomorrow. I'm going to live for the now. And so he squandered the money. He found himself in need. He did have the wisdom to get himself a job, right? So he hires himself out to one of the citizens of that country. He goes out in the field to feed pigs, starving, making less probably than minimum wage. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. He finds himself in miserable circumstances. I think this is something that happens to Folks, you'll hear them talk to you about their, their life situation or their, their circumstances, and they'll say, man, I look back at my choices, and I just wish I had done things differently. I wish that I had made different choices. Now, I think there's two ways that, that we can look at lives like that, right? We can say, I am going to learn the easy way, and I'm going to listen to this person's story, and then I'm going to avoid their mistakes, right? That's the easy way. Uh, And then there are some folks who they just have to learn the hard way, right? They're like, no, 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 I can, I can do it different. I can, I can fix that circumstance, or I can avoid the error that they made that led them into misery, right? Uh, in, in, In my head, I call this doing the math, 
right? You know, where you're like, I'm just going to, I'm going to analyze that formula that they put out there, right? And I'm going to, I'm going to change a few variables and equations, and then I won't wind up in that place, right? And then sometimes you're, you're like, oh, I didn't account for this. And there you are in that miserable circumstance. Some people got to learn the hard way. That's just the way it is, right? They just, they, until, until circumstances smash into them, they just don't hear, they don't Learn. And so here is this young man out in the field, and he's looking at the pig food, right? The the mix of all the household trash and the nasty that sat there for three or four days, right? And and gotten all warm and ripe, and he's ready to eat it. He's like, that looks good. I love the Jesus, the way the Jesus storybook Bible tells this story, right? The drawing is is a side view of this kid, and his mouth is like this. He's like Right? And, and he's leaning down over pig food and, and, and he realizes, he says, what am I doing? What is going on as he realizes his misery? As he looks at his circumstances and says, this is ridiculous. How did I wind up here? How did this happen? Things were so much better before. And so... This is the, the beginning of, of turning our circumstances personally from misery. When we find ourselves in a place where we are surrounded by difficulty or we, we find ourselves in a place where we say, I am miserable, sad, downcast, depressed by my circumstances, I am down in the dumps. We, we come to a realization that at some point, at some time, or in some place, things are better. This is what the young man does. He has a realization. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. He's thinking, if I were in my father's house right now, right, and I were out there feeding the pigs, I wouldn't be thinking about eating pig food because I'd be eating human food. Because things are better in my dad's house. I'm perishing here with hunger. As human beings who struggle with bad circumstances, when we wind up in these places, we need to take a look at God's character. We need to look to God's character and remind ourselves of what his character is. And to say that things are better there, that things are better with him rather than far from him. We break the relationship by walking away and departing, and things are better back at home. God says things to us like, in this world, you will have trouble, but be of good courage, I have overcome the world. He says that he speaks truth to us so that we might have joy and our joy might be full. Not a joy like the world gives, but a different kind of joy. He says that he will never leave us or forsake us. It's interesting because that statement is preceded by a statement where we're told not to love money or to fall victim to the deceitfulness of riches because he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you, implying what? That Finances will leave us or forsake us, right? 
You might have a bit of money stored up for a rainy day. If you own a car, right? Rainy day is coming. <laughs> Cars are like God's instrument of discipline to remove every bit of finances that you have from you, <laughs> right? You know, because everything's either $500 or $1,000 or $1,500. It's like, oh man, there's a weird noise coming from the car and you pull it into the, to the spot. You just put your money right on the counter and burn it <laughs> right then. I don't do that. You need it to fix a car, right? You know, it just, it just vanishes. He sees the truth of, of his father's character. Everybody listening to the parable knows that the father represents God. And he makes a plan of action. He says, I perish here with hunger. I will arise. I will go to my father and I will say something to him. Right? He may be down in the dumps but he realizes that in this situation, he needs to make a decision and a change. And the decision and change is, I got to move out of the dump, right? I got to move out of this place and I got to move from where I am in a far country and I need to move back towards my father. I need to set my direction heading that way and not heading this way anymore. It's interesting that the word for repentance in the scriptures is, is to change your mind or to change your direction. Uh, the scriptures speak of turning. How those who have repented have turned from serving idols to turn towards the living God. And this is the, the first step after, sorry, this is the second step. First, we realize the truth of God's character. Second, we say, I'm going to make a plan of action. And look at what he says he's going to do. I will go to my father and I will say, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He acknowledges that he has broken the relationship, that he has messed up. This is on me. You were, you were good to me. You were kind to me. And I messed things up. I sinned against you. I find it interesting that he acknowledges his own lack of worthiness to be back in the same kind of relationship with his father. But he still wants nearness. Just, just let me be near you. Let me be under your protection in your household, right? I'll take a job feeding your pigs. I just, I just want to change my circumstances. I want to be back where there's where there's bread, because I'm miserable. And so it says in verse 20, he arose and he came to his father. And here's where we see that though this young man had a plan of action that he thought would change his circumstances, his father had a plan of action which he put into place. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. Probably many days without a shower, right? And the likeliness or the, the likelihood of obtaining a shower from somebody on the road when you have had many days since you've had a shower, right? Probably decreases every day that you don't have a shower. There's a math formula there, probably. I'm not going to worry about it. This kid was smelly and nasty, and the father runs to him and kisses him. 
There's been a, a bit of debate in commentaries about the way that the son speaks to the father. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And then there's a period there, end quote, right? So, so here's, here's the question. Does the son say, I acknowledge that what I did was wrong and I acknowledge that I'm not, I, I, don't, I don't deserve to be brought back into a right relationship with you. But does he drop the last sentence, make me as one of your hired servants because he knows the character of his father? Because he knows that his father won't do that to him. Is that the reason? Or does the father interrupt him by what the father does next? Or does he take the risk and and say, I'm going to see what happens I'm not really sure. I don't think the focus here is really on what the son does. I don't think the focus is on the proper technique of the son in approaching the father. I think the focus is on the father at this point. The son realizes that he is distant and far off and miserable and that his way led to misery. And so he turns and returns to the father and the father greets him and comes to him. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father says to the servants, bring my best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. This is a reestablishing of the relationship. This is a welcome home. This is a, you are my son again. Bring the fattened calf and kill it, right? Today, it might be like, order those Omaha steaks online, right? You know, are they good? I don't know. Um, You know, we say, say, quick, run to the store and pick up the best cuts of meat, right? You know, they didn't keep their meat in a refrigerator, you know, they didn't have refrigerators. They had to get the fat calf out and they needed to get ready, right? And when you cook the whole calf, you know, you got to make sure there's a lot of mouths around. You need to feed them. And so we're going to have a party. We're going to get everybody together because you were dead. Now you're alive. You were distant. You were lost to me and now you're found. And it says that they began to celebrate. Two observations here. One, if you don't know this, then this should be amazingly good news to you. This, the heart of the Father, is the heart of God the Father. Many people do the math as they think about salvation or religion or Christianity, and they think Jesus is the nice one, Jesus is the one who's like, Dad, don't kill everybody, right? And then he comes into, into the world, and he's like, got to do everything perfect. You know, got to, be, got to be perfect to save all these people. And then he lives this, this perfect life, and he goes to the cross. And as he gets onto the, to the cross, and he's, he's suffering there, God the Father is like, you know what? I'm going to punish him, and he'll take the punishment. And then anyone who puts their trust in, in him... I'll forgive them, but everyone else is going to get it. And they think that's the way the father works or acts. No, the truth is that the father is incredibly compassionate and that he and the son, that the father and Jesus say, this 
is how we are going to save people. Maybe as you think about your own life, you need to change the way that you think about God the Father. And as you encounter your own circumstances and and think about your own life and think about whether or not God loves you, you need to put your place, you need to put yourself in the place of this son and then rewrite your circumstances and say, I'm separated from God and I am miserable and I realize that things will not be right until I make things right with God. And you, as you turn and return to him, you'll find he's already looking for you. You'll find he's already ready to run to you and to be compassionate. You know what? One of the most amazing personal discoveries over the, uh, the, the time that I have been preaching and teaching at Harvest is that God is incredibly humble. He's incredibly humble. And I don't hear people talking about this r- routinely, which is just amazing to me that, that I think, man, I look, at this, I look at this circumstance here and I apply it to God the Father and I think, oh, like you're the king of the universe. You deserve to be praised and honored and feared and revered. And everybody just stomps all over you and disobeys you and ignores you. But God is loving and compassionate. He's humble. He cares. He desires to save those who come to him. In part, because that's the only way that this works. Unless he is ready, when we come to a realization of our own misery and we turn to him, unless he's ready, if there needs to be some kind of proper formula there, we're going to mess it up every time. The scriptures say in Romans 5, 6, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then Paul points out how odd and alien and different this is. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He served us taking our sins upon himself so that if we look to him and say, I'm miserable, I need a savior. I need someone to change my circumstances and fix my relationship. When we look to him, we receive the righteousness of Christ. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, Paul says, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. This is the good news, by the way, that when we turn and return to the Lord, that he's not got this giant list of things where he's like, man, when you do this and you do this and you do this and you do this, then you'll be acceptable to me. Turning and returning, we are acceptable because he makes us acceptable. That's good news. That means God's not angry at you all the time. We'll talk about that in just a second. Here's the second observation. Many people, many believers, many Christians look out into the world and they see misery around them. They see people who are struggling with incredible loads of debt and making more and more bad choices. 
right? They see people whose, whose decisions have led them into bad circumstances and, and perhaps broken their health. They see bad habits, bad decisions, bad relationships, and they see them negatively affecting these people and ruining their lives. And we think, why don't they look into Jesus? Why don't they get right with God? Here's the reason why they don't. Many of them have no idea. They have no idea. They have no idea what the Father is like. They, they, they look at the images of Christianity and the images of Christians that are portrayed out in culture and they think, God is angry at me. And you know who else is angry at me? All the Christians are angry at me too. Part of that is we have a reputation of being miserable. Knowing? Miserable. Second definition on Wikipedia is this. Habitually morose, <laughs> grumpy, gloomy, bad-tempered, ill-natured, sour, glum, cantankerous. I love this word, lugubrious. <laughs> what does that mean? It means grouchy. Crabby, cranky. The son returns and the father says, it's so good that you've come back. The parable turns and talks about the other son. The older son was in the field. He draws near to the house. He hears music and dancing. What is this dancing and this music, you know, that I, that I hear? What's with this celebration don't stop to ask why the father didn't invite the son to come to the party first. That ruins the whole example of the parable. Just don't, don't go there, right? Let it, let it just be a fun story. He called to one of the servants, hey, and he asked what these things mean, meant. And the servant says, your brother's come. Your father's killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. And I think the servant's kind of like, hey, man, don't hang on to me. I'm going to the party, right? You know, bread, meat, wine, dancing, like it's going to be great. But he was angry and he refused to go in. And so the father's like, where is my kid? Where is he? Comes out and he says, hey man, come to the party. But he refused. He refused. Here I think is, is the struggle that many of us have with the gospel. Here's I think the struggle many of us have with the good news, right? We hear the good news that God loves sinners and accepts them. And here's the message that we receive. Jesus loves you. He died for you. He longs for you to come back into relationship with God. And you're like, that's what I want. I pray, Lord Jesus, save me. Come into my life. Transform me. And then the message that we hear is, now be good. Now be good. And we have this feeling or we've caught the message that we are just hanging by a string. The dad is miserable. Lugubrious, yes. I need to look up lugubrious. It's just fun to say. Um, we think that we are just hanging by a string on his good graces and that he is at any moment ready to say, you know what, I cancel the deal. I cancel the relationship. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine earlier 
this week and he was articulating some things and saying them and I was listening to him and I said, here's what I think you're saying. I think that you're saying that you believe that grace is for sinners, but Christians better behave themselves. This is the truth, I think, of what's going on here. The son who took the money went and moved away into a far country, but the son who stayed with his father moved into another country as well. And he left the relationship, or the relationship as the father defined it. He became miserable in doing good. Because he looked at doing good as trying to earn the affection of the father. Trying to earn rewards from the father. Look at what he says when the son gets the fattened calf, right? You gave him the fattened calf. He's angry. He's, I'm not coming into the party. All these years I've served you. Never disobeyed any of your commands. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who's devoured your property with prostitutes right he's bringing up the record here you killed the fattened calf for him this kid he's worth a goat this is a goat sized party right you celebrate me dad I'm, I'm a fattened calf sized party right why? Because I'm more worthy than he is. Think about that. When we internalize this and we look at, we look at people out in the world and we say, man, if they just come to Jesus, they're living that way all, those, all that time. You know, they're, they're, they're just living it up, doing whatever. And they come to Jesus and they get forgiven and it's all. And then, and then I'm over here my whole life for these past years. I'm, I'm fighting this habit and I'm praying and I'm giving and I'm doing this. Where's my reward? You know what we've done? We've forgotten the gospel message. This is the message of the good news is that none of us are worthy of anything. That our sinfulness, our self-centeredness, and that's what's really on display here with this kid, isn't it? That we think if I behave, if I act the right way, if I maintain my relationships, then I will be blessed more. I'll, I'll, I'll get the rewards that I'm after. This young man became miserable in doing good because he was trying to earn the Father's affection. And as we, as believers, we focus more and more on our behavior and we focus more and more on what we're doing and we say, if I do, then I will maintain. We're trying to earn something that we have been given absolutely, the love and the affection of God the Father. We become miserable in righteousness because we want to be loved more. <laughs> and I think many of us translate wanting to be loved more into gifts and circumstances. If God really loved me, I wouldn't have financial struggles. I wouldn't have struggles in my home. I would have true love. I wouldn't be sick. 
We look at our circumstances and we say, God's love would translate into better circumstances. We become miserable in our fellowship with him. How do we prevent ourselves from winding up in this condition? I think the answer is the reason or the the theme of, of the candle this morning. The question is, where do we find our joy? And here's where I I think many of us, we we think of our relationship with God as an asset that enhances our already determined, already set life plan, right? This is my life plan. This is what I'm going to do. This is who I'm going to be. This is where I'm going to go on vacation. This is how much money I'm going to earn. This is what my life is going to look like. And God is going to help me get there. And we say, God, give me joy in my plan, in my way. And you come alongside me and I'll just kind of I'll kind of adjust and and do the things that you want so that I can get what I want. Maybe I'm totally off base here and none of you identify with this. You never sit in your, your brain and do the math, right? Look at how Jesus defines joy. He says, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The 99 who think I've been good, you know, and I'm here and I'm, 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 I'm obeying and I'm being perfect for you. Love me, right? They're changing the relationship and breaking the terms of the relationship. Show me more affection, love and care. When someone realizes that, that they don't deserve it and they can't earn it and nothing that they can do can make it happen, there is joy in heaven as God runs to them and establishes the relationship and saves them. We tend to think of joy and happiness in terms of do we have enough to eat? Right? Do we have good circumstances? Is our life what we want? Paul tells us the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Aligning our values and, and saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to seek to live out my relationship with God by building that relationship on what makes him joyful, on what establishes his joy, is, I believe, a key to breaking out of this trap. What does God delight in? He delights in finding lost things. The son, the second son, that's not where his joy is. His joy is in rewards, in what's coming to him. Um, The examples that precede this, the parables that precede this, are the the sheep that was lost that was found that brings joy, or the coin that was lost that brings joy. I got home from Africa in 2012, my first trip there, and I realized that at some point on that trip, I had lost my wedding ring. And I can remember telling Nancy, like, I lost my wedding band again. I lost it, right, when I was in, when I was in seminary, uh, when I was in grad school, I lost it 
Uh, it just, all of a sudden, it just wasn't there one day. And I'm like, what, how, did it, how did it just fall off my finger? And then we were, we were cleaning and, getting, and throwing stuff away. And I have this habit. I do this with her old purses and other things. I like have to take everything out of something before I, I'm like, because pennies, you know, like I, I save them. I just put them in a pile and eventually cash, cash them in. And so I turned this, this bag inside out that I've carried all the time in seminary. And my wedding ring just flew out. I was like, ooh. I got a message, an email from uh, the lady who runs the ministry that we work with, and she said, um, is it possible that anybody left anything at the zebra guest house? And I was like, the zebra? Like, that's such a weird place. They've got this big zebra out front that you're not supposed to climb on, but I took pictures of myself on it um, <laughs> my first trip because I was a total... Mzungu, the first time I went to Africa, I did all the things that you just don't do, you know, that are culturally insensitive because I was ignorant and didn't know any better. And so I get this email and I'm like, yes, I think that's me. Is that my ring? And uh, a couple days later, this box arrived at the house and I took pictures of it. They're still on Facebook um, uh, of, of the box. And I took a picture of the box closed and then I opened it, took another picture, took another picture. And there... Ding, it was my wedding ring. Think about the way that I feel about getting this, right? Think about how God feels when someone returns to him. When someone comes to him and says, I need you. And now think about this. We get to be a part of that, folks. We get to be a part of the people that we work with who have no idea how God the Father is, we can say, do you know what? He loves you. And they say, but I have no worth and I have no value. I have messed up. I have ruined things. I have made bad decisions. I have cursed him. I have defied him. I knew the right thing and I did the wrong thing. And we say, you know what? He put that all on Jesus. He's willing to cancel it all out and to call you son or daughter and you don't need to maintain it. He just gives it to you. We can find our joy there. Because you know what? There's only three things that last in the world. There's God. There's his word. And there's the souls of men and women. And if we can bring joy to the heart of God by getting out of the reward system and saying, you are so good, thank you for what you've given to me. Or saying, hey, let me show you where I found joy. Let me introduce you to my father. All right. Let me just, let me just put a, a period on the end of the sentence by pointing out this, I believe, is where Paul found his joy. Listen to what he says in Philippians 4.1. As he closes out that letter, he says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord. What does he call them? He calls them his joy. 1 Thessalonians 2.19, speaking about the coming of Jesus. And when Jesus appears, you know, is Paul going to be like, Oh, here I am, you know, uh, building my little kingdom and working out my plan. Right? You know, is that what Paul is going to be doing? He's going to be saying, look, Jesus, I did this. What, what's in his hands? 1 Thessalonians 2.19. What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting? 
before our Lord Jesus at his coming. What am I going to say here? This is what I did. He says, is it not you? That's what he says to people that he shared the gospel with and drawn to the Lord. The very next verse, he says, you are our glory and joy. We can turn back to the Father and find this amazing relationship at any time. Anytime. If the only thing that you get out of this morning is God's not mad at you. He's not mad at you all the time. He's not. He's not mad at you. God is happier than you imagine. He's happier than you've ever been in your entire life. And he loves you. And you can find joy that frees you from misery by seeking to bring others to him. Find your joy there. That's a joy that will last. Let's pray as we close and we'll sing a final song. Father, we thank you for your goodness. I know that, that, that this is not a simple matter of saying, hey, feel better, God loves you, and that all circumstances change. Because many of us, as we have been in these difficult circumstances, perhaps we are right now, we need to do the, the difficult work of rising up and returning. We need to, we need to get out of the pit, or we need to, uh, we need to leave the pig stall, and we need to turn back to the Lord. And that can be complex and difficult. But that doesn't change the fact that the answer to so much misery is to return to you. And Father, I pray that, that we as believers would be those who have a strong sense of mission. And that we look to others and we say, that is someone who the Lord delights in and longs to be in relationship with. And I will seek to bring them back into relationship with him. Father, I pray that we would find hope here. I pray that this is, would be where we find our joy and that we would find peace and excitement in serving you and that we would break out of the rut of trying to earn your affection, Lord, because you are good and kind. We thank you for your love for us, which we don't deserve. We thank you for giving us dignity. We thank you for calling us into relationship with you. And we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing a closing song together. Mm-hmm.